Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Into this word this morning. So I, I normally have a scripture that we go to, but this morning I'm going to do this a little bit different, and I'm going to be sharing my heart with you about the three unavoidable types of warfare that everyone in this room will encounter at some point in your life. Uh, when we talk about warfare uh, as Christians, we often see Satan involved. And I always want to remind people that the devil is not omniscient, omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He's only one place at one time. And he probably has more important things to do than attack you and give you a flat tire coming to church, all right? So uh, a lot of times people see all their warfare as Satan doing it. He can do it. Paul pointed that out, that Satan hindered him in his travels. But most of you, hopefully at least, will never personally encounter the power of Satan himself. Now, which leads me to the fact that there are principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, wicked spirits, and heavenly places. That's in Ephesians 6 to 12. And those type of spirits you will probably encounter, but you may not encounter them in the form of there's a demon, there's a demon, because spirits work through people. And I've always said this, principalities work through personalities. You may have never personally seen an evil, unclean, or demonic spirit, but I guarantee you, you met some people that got it in them. Come on, somebody. You run, you run across somebody somewhere that you said, that's a bad spirit. They, that, it's not just their attitude. You can look at their eyes and tell they are really, really messed up. And so when we talk about warfare uh, and we come into the New Testament, there are four verses um, Actually, 2 Corinthians 10 and 4, it deals with mental strongholds. 1 Timothy 1 and 8 deals with the spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 2, 4 deals with the cares of life that come against people. And 2 Peter, this is an interesting verse, chapter 2, 11, says, fleshly lust war against the soul. So in other words, when people fall into the lust of the flesh, you have a battle in your mind or a soul battle. So really, uh, in the New Testament, in the references where warfare is mentioned, it actually deals mostly with the flesh. Flesh not just being this body. When I say flesh, you think of your physical body. Flesh is the appetite or the desire of the flesh. Your flesh says, stay in bed, don't come to church. Where's the people that had that happen this morning? Let me preach to them. Your flesh says, you're too tired to pray. Your flesh says, don't read the Bible. You're not going to get anything out of it. Your flesh says, don't witness to that man. You might upset him. Your flesh says, keep that money for Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, you've been there too. Okay. You might, you might not want to give it because you might need it later. So that's the flesh. The flesh is opposite of the spirit. The Bible said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, what I want to share with you, however, is I want to go into the types of warfare that come. Warfare can come by three levels. Self-invited, uninvited, or unavoidable. <laughs> Self-invited is lot. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, looked towards Sodom, moved in Sodom. And then when the angels show up, he's sitting at the gate looking back where he came from, wishing he'd never moved into the very wicked city. So that's what we would call self-invited trouble. He brought the problem on himself because he moved to the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. Then there is what is what I term uninvited trouble. Uninvited trouble is what Job went through. He didn't see the attack coming. He didn't know his children would be lost in a storm of a whirlwind. He didn't know he'd lose all of his wealth. 
He didn't know that his health was going to deteriorate to almost to the point of death. So he did not invite, he did nothing. He was sinless. He was perfect. He loved God. He feared God. He did everything right. And just because, no, stay with me. Just because you do everything right doesn't mean the enemy is going to leave you alone. So Job's attack was not because of a sin that he had. Job's attack was just a targeted attack set up by Satan who thought that Job was serving God because of the blessing, which was not true. Now, we also know that there is something that I call unavoidable, uh, unavoidable trouble. And uh, one of the things that's guaranteed, if you're going to be a real believer, there's one thing you're guaranteed in life, and that's persecution. That some, they're going to misunderstand you, malign you, make fun of you, and mock you. But don't worry about it. When they used to mock me in school, they used to, the, the big word when I was in school, this is a long time ago, holy roller. Hey, there's the holy roller kid. There's the holy roller preacher. Hey, holy roller. Hey, tongue talker. And I just got mad one day and said, you call me holy roller and what you say is true. But if you knew why I was rolling, you'd be rolling with me too. And I've, lear I've learned at times, now this is not always true in foreign countries, but at times when you're persecuted, you just throw it back at them and make a joke out of it. And some, these, these guys at school said, dude, you're pretty funny, man. Stone, you're okay. You're pretty cool. And I thought, well, hey, I made a friend just mocking them, you know. So, but persecution is one of those things that the apostle Paul went through. He went through 22 different things that was persecution. And it was, it was things that was totally unavoidable. Now, when you go through any kind of a temptation or testing, it'll fall into three categories. You're going to see the number three come up here for the next couple minutes, three categories. There's what's called common testing. That's what's called seasonal testing. And it's what's called the hour of testing. Common testing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13 are things common to men, meaning Everybody in this room goes through common testings. The testing of your faith. Will your finances make it? Will you have the money to pay the bills? God, you're going to have to help us. The testing with your children. How many of you know if you've got two kids, one's compliant and one's defiant? Come on. I mean, one you can look at and they cry and they, they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the other one says, why, why, what, what? I don't care. What, what, who, who? You know? I mean, I have a boy and a girl. Trust me, I know compliant and I know defiant. I know the difference between the two. And so in this, in the common testing, there's things that's common to men. Then there's seasonal testing. That's in Luke 4.13, where Satan uh, allows a temptation or testing to come. And sometimes it's personal pressure, self-invited pressure. Sometimes it's things that you have no control over, but it will come in seasons. It'll come, it'll go, it'll come, it'll go, it'll come, it'll come, it will go. Some of you that maybe were former alcoholics or drug addicts, you'll find that you may go six months to a year and have no craving. And one day you just get up and it's like, bam, you get hit with this thought. Why don't you try it again? Go back to it one time. You know, one time is all it takes to pull you back into your captivity and your bondage. So you refuse to do that. But that's that's what you call seasonal testing. So don't feel bad if after a year of being free or two years or five years of being free from something, you get hit by the enemy to go back to that because you just have to say, wait a minute, I'm in a seasonal testing. And the seasonal testing, the good thing about a seasonal testing is, a good thing about a common testing is that you know everybody's dealing with it. Come on, you're not the only one out there. Everybody's dealing with, this, with, with it. And the thing about
about a seasonal testing is you know it comes and goes in seasons, which means you can outlast it. It may last an hour. It may last a day. It may last two or three days. It may last longer than that. But you know in a seasonal testing that all you got to do is stay firm and hold on, and the pressure is going to subside. It's not going to be there. That's the good thing you need to understand about seasonal testing. The third testing, which is the most serious, is Revelation 3 and 10. It's called the hour of testing. Uh, Peter went through the hour of testing where Satan went after him to destroy his faith. Job went through the hour of testing where his integrity was tried of would he really stay true to God even though he lost all of his wealth. So the hour of testing can be the death of a grandchild, the early death of a child, the death of a husband, the death of a wife, a disease that you're diagnosed with when you're in your 20s and your 30s and you're saying, how could this happen to me? I've got my whole life in front of me. So uh, common testings can be when people lose their job, when the company shuts down. It's a, it's a time in your life that it's the most severe trial that you've ever been through. So those are the three types of testing. Now, let me say quickly about these three before we go to the major thing I want to talk about. Believe it or not, we haven't got to that yet. And that is <laughs> that each of these levels of testing, they are common, seasonal, and hour of testing, have four ways of being free from them eventually. Sometimes instantly, sometimes eventually. Number one is to avoid the wrong people, the wrong places at the wrong time. Because your associates that you deal with can pull you into things that you don't want to be pulled into. For example, if you've been free from drugs, don't go hang out with Bobo the drug dealer. Okay? If you have an ex-girlfriend and you're now married, please don't go on Facebook and try to see how she's doing. Oh, God, I got a witness from some lady back there just now. Somebody must be going through that right now. So what, I, <laughs> what I'm saying is some things, if you avoid it, it will cause the trouble to cease. Number two is resisting the devil. James chapter 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist means to stand against, withstand, or simply to hold your ground. Hold your ground and he'll eventually flee because he'll get tired of standing there watching you hold your ground. Number three is disciplining the flesh. Colossians 3 and 9, put off the old man, put on the things of God. Uh, so in other words, the third way of overcoming some things is discipline. Fourthly, is enduring with patience. Matthew chapter 10 and 22. To be patient means to wait, to tarry behind, to be unmovable. So there are some things that you have to go through, but you may have to patiently wait until it's over because the Bible says in your patience, you will possess your soul. But now that's what I've just given you is common to everybody in this room. However, there are three types of warfare that are going to be unavoidable. And I'm going to give these three types of warfare to, to you. Number one is destiny warfare. Number two is distraction warfare. And number three, believe it or not, is called pre, premature death warfare. And I want to give them again because I see you taking notes. One is destiny warfare. The second is distraction warfare. And the third is premature death warfare. Now, your destiny warfare is a warfare to pull you out of the will of God. Your distraction warfare is a warfare to consume valuable time and eat up your time with things that are what we call little foxes spoiling the vine. The third warfare, which is very serious, is premature death warfare. This can include being in an accident. This can, can include some type of a sickness or a life-threatening disease. And believe it or not, many people deal with this who are believers who truly love God with all their heart. Distraction battles. Let's talk about distraction battles for just a moment. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but we have to talk about it. I have often said that every morning when I get up, I have to set aside 20% of my time 
for that that I'm not expected to do. I go up and I say, today I'm working on a book. Today I'm working on this message. Today I'm working on this series. And and my office staff, some of them are here. They know that's what I do. But then I get a call from the builder. But then I get a call from the book publisher. Then I get a call from Charlie. You have to do television closings today. And then I get a call. Hey, you didn't put a closing on the tape club. And all of a sudden, what I did not plan... I am distracted from my assignment to go and do that. So there are, there are basic distractions that's going to happen to you every single day. However, what you have to be careful of are the little fires that start burning that you're running around putting out all the little fires. Now, pastors have to do this on a consistent basis because I found out that there are several different types of church people, but basically there's two, those who have real needs and those who simply want attention. I have people call the office at VOE. I have to talk to Perry Stone. I need counseling. And they get mad because Perry Stone at age 18 made a decision. I never counsel anybody. If I have super close friends that say, can I have your advice? Then I'll give them my advice. But I have never sat down in a room and counseled a female, a male, a marriage, anything. I don't do that. Now, one is I don't have the time for it. But one of my dear friends kept telling these people, you want, you want Perry to counsel you? Yes. He said, okay, what's what you need? Well, I'm going through depression. Well, he's got a good album out there on how how to deal with depression for two hours. So if you went to counseling, he's going to tell you what's on that album. And they'd get mad. Oh, I won't buy no album. I want, I want counseling. And finally, my, he was, it was Keith Dudley years ago. He said, Perry, I found out something. A lot of these people who claim they have needs, all they want is attention. Oh, it's awful quiet. I think the front row is getting me and the rest of you kind of dropped out on me. I just, I dropped a crowd right there. Just went, you went through the basement right there when I just said that, but I'm going to go ahead and keep on preaching anyhow. I found, out, I found out years ago that people want attention because I used to have prayer lines all the time. You know, I had the strength to do that. And we'd pray for three or 400 people. I would be in an 11-week revival or a five-week revival, I promise you, and the same 10 people came through the prayer line every night. I, I, I know that by the end of a five-week revival, praying for them every night, that's why three of the men went bald during the revival because I literally, no, I mean, I'm praying for them every night. I'm praying for them every night, every night, every night. And it dawned on me, they really, they really weren't expecting anything to happen because if they expected it, they'd have went and said, I'm holding on, brother. I'm believing God. We prayed. We agreed. No, they wanted the attention of coming through. There, and they would literally wait till I was dog tired and they're dragging me out. Brother prayer, I need prayer. Next day, brother prayer, I need prayer. Brother prayer, I need prayer. I could just see the guy coming in front of me. It was like, it was like, it was like a stuck cassette tape back in there. I need prayer. 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 I mean, I just felt like, I just felt like taking a, a, a towel, pouring oil on it and wrapping it around the guy's head and tying it and just say, wear that for the next three weeks. <laughs> so everybody's going to deal with distractions. Let me give you three points about distractions, two or three points. Point number one is don't fight every battle that's not your battle. People are going to try to pull you into their warfare. They're going to try to pull you into their opinion. What do you think about Sue? What do you think about Bill? You know what I tell them? It's not my battle. That's the battle you got to deal with. That's between you, your husband, who, and your wife, you and your family, you and your kids. I'll pray for you, but I, you're not going to pull me into sitting at a table getting an opinion, and you get up from the table. Well, I just talked to Perry. Perry, let me tell you what Brother Perry said about Sister So-and-so. Because Brother Perry's not going to say anything about Sister So-and-so. So my point, oh, this is good preaching, Perry. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So number one is do not be pulled into everybody's battle. Only the battles you're called to. Number two is you choose the time and place that you want to deal with your battle. 
David didn't go fight Goliath when they wanted him to. David chose the place, David chose the time, and David chose the weapon. Saul tried to hook David up with his armor. You know, Saul, he's so crafty. If you'd have covered David in Saul's armor and David would have killed Goliath, the whole Philistine army would have said, that was King Saul in that armor. You know, that's Saul's armor. Boy, Saul took on Goliath and Saul was afraid to fight the rascal. Was sitting in his tent with his armor hanging up and tried to hook it up with David. Come on, you can't wear somebody else's armor. And God gives you your own weapons to fight your own warfare. So you've got to choose what weapon to use, the time to go to battle. And there's sometimes you go to battle, and the Bible says there's times of peace and times of war. There's times you don't go to battle. There's times you sit back and say, I'm going to have peace, and I'm going to pray about it, and I'm not getting involved. And there's other times, oh, yeah, Lord. Number three is don't let anybody ever pull you away from your assignment. I'll go a step further. Don't let anybody pull you away from the church you're planted in. See, Nehemiah was building the wall, okay? And it got so bad, they had to have guys with swords in one hand, spears in one hand, and trowels in the other, and they're building this wall. And here comes a man from Samaria who doesn't want them to build the wall. And this is what the Bible says. He said to Nehemiah, meet us in the plains of Ono. It's in your Bible. The plains of Ono. I don't even know where that's at, and I've been to Israel 36 times. I've never found that place. But there was a valley called Ono, so they're trying to get him off of the assignment to the plains of Ono. So let me tell you what the plains of Ono are in your life. Ready? They make you do something you're not supposed to do. They make you change your mind. They pull you off of your assignment, and you look back and say, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, boy. I messed that one up. Oh, no. Should have stayed on the wall. Should have stayed at the place I was planted at. So these three things are very important. Do not fight every battle. These are distraction battles that come your way. Choose the time and the weapon that you fight with. Don't let anybody pull you out of your assignment. And number four, mm, oh, this is good. This could, this could deal with Facebook or this could deal with things like that. Don't waste time arguing with ignorance. Tweet that, Tammy. Don't waste time arguing with ignorance. The Bible says avoid foolish questions that gender strife. It even talks about be careful of endless genealogies. Be careful of... So in other words, when somebody comes on and says, I don't believe in the rapture, I say, you're stupid. Prove to me there's a rapture. Can I tell you, if he don't believe in it, nothing I tell him or her will make them believe in it. So do you think I'm going to go on fast? I people come on Facebook. I challenge you to a debate. No, I don't have time to debate you. You're afraid of debating me. I don't have time to debate you. Why should I debate someone that I'm not going to change their opinion anyway? When I could be preaching the word to people who want to hear the word and receive what God has to say. You will spend more of your time arguing with ignorance than walking away frustrated because they don't believe in tongues and you do, so you're going to convince them. No, the only person that can convince someone the Holy Spirit is real is the Holy Spirit himself. The only person that can convert a Saul of Tarsus is Jesus knocking him off his horse on the road to Damascus. Come on, let Jesus knock some people down. Let Jesus bring them down. Let Jesus reveal himself to them. Hey, okay, let's go to number two. Destiny warfare, destiny warfare. Now, when you hear a lot of talk about your destiny, your destiny, destiny is not a final arrival. Yeah. 
Destiny is a series of phases of moving from God's will to the next level. We call it moving from faith to faith and glory to glory. For example, I started out the ministry in my basement. Then I went to a 350-square-foot office. Then a 2,000-square-foot, 7,500-square-foot, 25,000-square-foot. Now a 25,000-square-foot plus a 45,000-square-foot. And now we have a 72,000-square-foot. Now we're building a lodge with 20,000 square feet. Meaning, are you listening? That God's will was not build VOE. God says, now build ISO. We had to buy a building to fill the Bible school. God says, now do this. Start a youth ministry. We had to build a building. So God's will is revealed to you in phases. The destiny of God in your life comes by God revealing to you in phases what to do and then bringing the people into your life to give to your bosom or give to your ministry, give to your work or give to, give to the works of your hands or give to your business, whatever the case may be. So, But God will try to... God, let me say this, the enemy will always try to abort your blessing before it gets there. And a lot of times he'll do that by bringing people into your life with another vision. Can I tell you, when God's given you a vision and somebody else walks in with their vision, anything with two visions is division. Just remember that. So you've got to, because I'll tell my staff, what do you think God wants me to do? And Tammy, who's my secretary, Tammy will say, what God wants you to do is go back and remember what he told you to do. Tweet that now. Put your name on it. No, God wants you to do what he told you to do. So go back to what God told you to do and do what he told you to do. Because a lot of times people will try to pull you into their vision. Dr. T.L. Lowry used to tell me years ago, Perry, I believe, I believe that God wants you to come and pastor the national church. He had a great church in Washington, D.C. He said, I think you're the next pastor. And I used to preach for him every year after year after year, and I'd hear the same thing. Why don't you leave Cleveland? Come up here and let me mentor you. Here's a 1,000-member church or whatever it was. You can have this church affect the nation, walk the halls of Congress, go to the White House and lay hands on the president. And he had me all, he had me all confused because God called me to start VOE. God told me to move to Cleveland, Tennessee. Do you know, for five years, I wrestled horribly over whether or not I should do that. And finally, God said, we're not original vision. What did I tell you to do? Come to Cleveland. All right. Are you in Cleveland? Yes. What did I tell you to do? Build VOE. How are you building it? Yes. All right. Tell TL no. After five years, I said no. And when I said no, can I, can I tell you what happened? When I said no after five years, the ministry just exploded in Cleveland, Tennessee. And when God started opening all these crap. And guess who took the church? T.L. Lowry's son. Hello. Who was supposed to take the church to begin with? He was the music director and he ended up taking the church. So my point is, you have to realize that God has a purpose for you in your destiny and you cannot allow the enemy to try to destroy it prematurely, but you have to go from progression to progression. I, let me just tell you something about me that's really interesting. Most people would not know this. I flunked English. I, I don't like to say this in front of kids. I got expelled from school for starting a fire. Now, I wasn't bad. I wasn't killing nobody. Come on. I wasn't, no, no. I wasn't, you know, knifing people and all that kind of stuff. But I just hated school and I wanted to get kicked out. So I did something to get kicked out. So my mama came to me and she says, you're flunking English. How do you know one day that God, God is not going to allow you to speak and get it before people? I said, I'm never going to write books. I'm never going to preach and I'm never going to speak. So I don't care about English. Famous last words. When God began to speak to me to write books, I started writing books when I was 18 years of age, and my books would have 60 spelling mistakes in them. This is before spell check. By the way, spell check doesn't spell check. 
You ever voice texted somebody? Check it before you send it, please. I've cussed people out and didn't even know I was cussing them out. I said, oh my God, I didn't say that. I promise I did not say that. I was driving. I shouldn't have been driving. Now, back, back east, you know, we still drive and text. You can't do that in California. I understand. <laughs> Lord Jesus, help me now. But let me show you how amazing God is. How can I write books? How can you have, how can you be a, a, a bestseller? And I have awards for two books that are bestselling books. And you flunk English. Answer, get a proofreader. You write it, somebody proofs it. Come on, preach. I'm preaching rather better than you're listening right now. I actually have a level of Asperger autism. There's nobody in this room that would know that until you get with me in private, and then you can see it very clearly. I'm not even supposed to be able to stand in front of you and preach. Did y'all know that? I'm not supposed to be able to do that. I'm not even supposed to be able to meet people. That's probably why I have 170,000 hours of studying the Bible by myself, because I like being by myself. I just get up in the morning, look in the mirror. How you doing? Good looking. Hey, fine. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. They know I carry on a conversation with myself. They'll walk in the office. I'll say, is somebody in there with Perry? They'll say, no, he's by himself talking to himself right now. Well, I got Bible for it. David said, I will say to my soul, soul. David must have had Asperger too. Come on. He's talking to himself. Read the Bible. He's talking to himself. Read Jesus. He's praying in the garden out loud, talking to himself. He's over there. He's talking to himself. Oh, anyway, y'all, you're just, you're just, you're going to, you're going to understand it. How can you build a multi-million dollar ministry, worldwide ministry, go on television when you know nothing about television, you know nothing about how to do it because you get the people who know how to do it and you train them or you hire the best people around you. You know, it's really interesting. I talked to a guy, I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but I talked to a guy that worked with four presidents. And I asked him, I said, who was the smartest? You're not going to believe it. Secret service man said, Jimmy Carter was the smartest, but he was the most unfriendly. Now, his, this is a black man. He said, he never said hi to me one time, and I, I met him first thing every morning. I said, who was not the most brilliant? He said, Ronald Reagan. I said, no, wait a minute. He said, no, Reagan could make a speech, and Reagan's key was he surrounded himself with good people, and Carter surrounded himself with dumb people. <laughs> Hello? And he taught me something. And this is a guy, this is Lewis Mason who worked for the Secret Service. And he got in trouble, by the way, for making that statement because it got out and the Secret Service called him back in, told him to keep his mouth shut. But I said it, so he didn't. So you don't get Lewis in trouble. But the point I make, the point I make is this. Surrounding yourself with the right people. When you are dealing with, with, with I don't have the money, I don't have the background, I don't have the right people, around, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have that. What the enemy will try to do, he will try to distract you away from where you're going. He will use people to distract you. He will use people to discourage you. He'll have family members that will tell you you can't do it. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say, I know what's in here. And I found some scriptures. I found that when I am weak, he is strong. I found out that I can do all things through Christ that strengthened me. I found out forgetting those things that are behind reaching for the things that are before I press toward the mark of the prize of the calling. I found out that he said, I'm with you always, even to the end. I found out he said, I'll not leave you. So you find these things out. You hang on to what you believe. 
we, Pam and I both, and, and, and I know I'm in Southern California, but Pam and I both are Alabama football fans, and we get to go to the game. I was privileged this year. I went to the chapel services this year with the team twice. Got to stay on the same floor in the hotel with the whole team. Oh, my wife. My wife, my wife has never looked at another guy and said, he's cute, he's good looking. She just doesn't do that. But when the Alabama players came out, oh, God, they're Scarborough. Oh, honey, oh, I'd just love to have a picture with him. Well, I said, let's go to the elevator. Oh, I can't. I said, well, come on. We're going to the elevator. And I said, stand beside him. Come on, I've have a picture. Of course. Anyway, Nick Saban. I wasn't jealous. I just want you to know. I'm just jealous of the guy's body. I said, you know, one day when I grow up, I want to look like you. I don't know how that's going to happen. But <laughs> Nick Saban uh, is the coach of Alabama. He's from West Virginia. And his father, he was in college. And his father started a football team with, with almost nobody in a little town. Would go pick these guys up, pick these kids up. And if you want to know why Snick is so mean, he is mean. I mean, he's tough. I don't want to say mean. Let me go back to that. He's tough. They had a boy on that team that wanted to go squirrel hunting during football practice. And he didn't show up. He was the star player of this little team in West Virginia. Next day, Nick's dad said, hey, come here, Billy. Said, Billy, go up on top of that hill while we practice and stand. Don't you dare sit down. And you holler every time you see a squirrel. And he made the boys stand up there and scream every time he saw a squirrel while the, while the team practiced. So that's where Nick gets this from. Now, when Nick's dad's di dad's dad died, he owned a gas station and a Dairy Queen. And Nick was going to quit school and go back to run the Dairy Queen. Have y'all heard the story of the Dairy Queen and the, and the gas station? And his mama looked at him and said, your destiny is not here. His mama. Mama, you need help. You can't do this. You hear me, Nick. You stay in school because your destiny is not here. And then before the national championship, they interviewed him and said, if you had not listened to what your mother said about your destiny, what would have happened? He said, today, I'd be an old guy sitting up in West Virginia in a little town running a Dairy Queen and a gas station. But now he's one of the most winning coach in college football history. Aren't you glad that somebody's mama... Aren't you glad your mama, come on, aren't you glad your granddad, aren't you, glad, aren't you glad you had somebody in your family that said, don't go the normal route, be above and beyond what you think you can be because God is able to do, hallelujah, exceedingly, mm, abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So in other words, in your destiny, it's a process. You have to be determined where God has placed you, stay where you're planted, stay where God has put you. Don't be pulled away by people's opinions. Now, I have shared this before, but there are so many new people here that I want you to hear this story because one of the things that the enemy would like to do is take you out prematurely. I had been in a plane that the engine went out and didn't know if we were going to crash and I was going to die a few years ago. I have uh, had all sorts of, of, of things like this happen where my life could have been taken prematurely. People running red lights, God saying, stop, don't move yet. And bam, here comes a guy that would have T-boned me. Stories like this on and on. But I want to tell you one of the most fascinating stories I've ever come across. In the, in the late 1800s, there was an Indian village in Tazewell, Virginia, where the Cherokee Indians were living along the river, and they were actually cleaning fish when a group of rowdies, militiamen, came and killed everybody that was in the tribe. It wasn't a big tribe, but it was a, it was a several uh, Indian families. And a Christian man, and his name was, his name, his, I say a Christian man, he was a believer, but his name was Christian. He was riding on a horse and he came across this terrible scene of just all the Indians were dead and he heard a baby cry and the mother had fallen over her baby and the baby was still living. He had no idea what to do. There was no living Indian there. So he took the baby home with him and adopted the baby and he named this baby Allie Christian and she was a full-blooded Cherokee. When she grew up, 
she married a man by the name of Sam Dumford, and they had a daughter, and they named their daughter Nalvi. Nalvi is a very unusual name, but Nalvi is actually an Indian name that goes back that probably someone may have been named that way uh, years ago among the Cherokees. So Nalvi grows up, and when Nalvi is 17 years of age, her and her boyfriend are in a car driving between a place called uh, War and Yukon, West Virginia. And these were dirt road days before the paved roads. And he went too fast and he skid when it was wet. And he went over and flipped. And both of them, no seatbelts back in that day, of course, both of them fell out of the car. Now they held onto a tree and the, the, the ledge was very steep. And then a rock loose hit the car and her boyfriend tumbled into the, just ended up dead at the bottom of the ravine. It was a horrible death, and she realized that she had become, first of all, her mother was very close to death, the, the Cherokee Indian lady, and she survived. Now, at age 17, she comes very close to death, so she finally um, remarries. Uh, she marries, I should say, a man by the name of Bill, and uh, she's pregnant. So Bill goes and goes looking for a doctor to deliver their baby, and it's in the dead of winter. It happens to be the month of February. There's two feet of snow on the ground, so he walks down what's called a hollow. I think some of you might know what that is. That's a ravine, just a ravine, a valley. Got to be from Kentucky and West Virginia to understand the hollow. <laughs> hollow! Holla! So, it means different things in different places. So um, he's walking down two feet of snow. He goes to the coal mining camp doctor. That doctor says, a woman's having a baby. I have to go here. He, he walks several miles to another camp, gets a Dr. Hatfield. Yes, the Hatfields and McCoys are real people. And he gets Dr. Hatfield. They ride, he rides a horse all the way back. He almost, Bill almost froze to death. It was that cold. When they get to the top of the mountain where Bill's house is, Nalvi is running out of the door with her robe on, screaming, Bill, Bill, get her. She's got the baby. But what happened, a midwife, she wasn't all mentally there, but a midwife from the area came and was running with a newborn baby, screaming, this is my baby. God's given me this baby in the dead of cold. Now, had, had Bill been five minutes late, this one would have run across the mountains in the cold with a baby in a little thin blanket. The baby would have died of pneumonia. So the baby was almost kidnapped and almost killed at the moment of birth. Now, this is Nalvi's a uh, 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 son uh, that's being born. Now, how many can see there's a pattern here? Do y'all see what the pattern is? What is it? It's premature death. Premature death. Indian baby could have died, didn't die. 17-year-old now, he could have died, didn't die. Another baby born, died, couldn't die. Well, this man gets married uh, to a beautiful lady, and uh, they are riding uh, in West Virginia, and they have a son. The son is a little over two years of age. The son is sitting between them. This is, again, it's been in the 19, early 1960s. There's no seatbelts in the car back then. And the father did a very unusual thing. He said, to the mama, sit him down because if we have an accident, he'll go straight through the windshield and it'll kill him. No sooner had he make that statement than they hit a road. The road is straight and he's going 55 miles an hour in a Comet, 1960 Comet. If you remember the Comet car, some of you will. He's going, and that's, by the way, when cars were tanks. Okay. And he's going 55 miles an hour and there's a truck in front of him with no brake lights. He thinks the truck is moving, realizes it's not. Then he goes to pass and here comes a big truck on the other side, so he's got, he's got three choices. Go up an embankment and roll the car, hit this guy from behind going 55, or hit the other guy head on. He breaks. When he breaks, he hits the car. They estimate, they estimate he's probably going about 60. He hits the car going 55 miles an hour because of the length of the skid marks, hits this car. The wife's head goes through the windshield, busts her jaw, hits the dashboard, breaks her knee. The, the father bends the steering wheel completely over, hits his larynx. It's only a miracle that it didn't hit him here and, and break, just choke him and completely kill him. That's a miracle of God. But it's the baby that they're concerned about because the baby hit the dashboard so hard it knocked both shoes off his feet. 
The baby is laying in the glass. There's glass all over him. And the mama comes to, broken jaw, broken knee. Uh, there's two hitchhikers in the back. And the, these guys came out uninjured, but their hands went through the vinyl. And, you know, back in the day when the old springs were. And one of them got his hand in the spring, broke his wrists, things like that. But nope, uh, nobody's dead except they think the baby. And then the mama just threw to that jaw. She says, oh, Jesus, my baby, don't let my baby die. She starts praying. The father, who's delirious by now, looks down, sees the baby. And the baby all of a sudden jerked. When mama gets to pray and the baby jerked like this, and she's thinking maybe he's having a seizure, maybe he's coming, maybe he's, we don't know. And all of a sudden she, and you don't do this in a wreck when, uh, because the baby's back could be broken, but she saw the baby move and she picked the baby up and sat him beside her. Now the wreck has just happened. And all of a sudden the boy starts crying and he says, my shoes, my shoe, shoe, shoe. He's crying because he lost his shoe. Come on, kid. You've just been in a wreck. So the aunt comes and takes the boy. Mom and dad go to the hospital. The aunt picks glass out of this, this little curly-headed boy, picks little pieces of glass out of him. But he didn't die. And the mama said it's an absolute miracle because he hit the dashboard going 55 miles an hour hard enough to knock his shoes off, but he didn't die. Now, let me just tell you who these people are. <laughs> the, the Cherokee Indian woman is my great-grandmother. Nalvi is my grandmother. The baby kidnapped was my dad. And I was the little boy on the floor. Total true story. <laughs> Jesus. Before my dad died, I, can't, I still can't hardly, dad's been dead seven years. I can still hardly talk about him. We were sitting at his house and he was very feeble. He was about 77 years of age, going on 78. His eyes were dim. He had diabetes, very serious. Didn't really take care of himself as he should. And he looked at me and he says, I want to tell you a story. And he reminded me about the car wreck. And he said this to me. He said, my, my entire life, I always felt that the enemy did not want me to start that church in Buchanan, West Virginia, and had that wreck set up to prevent me from starting a church, which it actually did. It interrupted Dad's whole plan for, for a long time. In fact, his voice was rough the rest of his life. He said, but I'm convinced now that that car wreck was about you. That the entire destiny lineage of death trying to take out all of us was that God Almighty looked into the future and ordained you from your mother's belly to preach the end time prophetic word. And the enemy did not want it preached. So I've been in car accidents. I've been in possible plane crashes. I've been in, I've been in various, I, 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 Oregon, I fell off of the rim of a volcano and caught myself miraculously before I hit the bottom. I would have broke every bone in my body and ended up dead shipping my body back to Cleveland. I've had stuff happen like that. But here's what I've proven, what I've realized. God is faithful. And what you have to realize is in any of these levels is that God is not against you. That God is always for you. That God doesn't want you losing and God doesn't want you failing. That God wants you to win. And what you have to do is see that and get that revelation in your spirit and allow God to take you through every level. And sometimes it'll be patience. Sometimes it'll be extreme praying in the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it will be waiting on the Lord, just simply waiting.
Sometimes it will be fighting in the spirit and dealing with people. Sometimes it's just all going to vary. But the word I give you today is this word. There's no temptation taking you, but such as common demand. But God will not allow you to be tested above that which you were able. But will with the temptation, and that's testing, same word, make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. God is faithful. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.